Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and again, I appreciate all of you being here for our show today. Lots to talk about, so let's get right to introducing the panel and start our conversation. It's Thursday, which means my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is the boss himself, the editor-in-chief, Kevin Riley. How are you, Kevin? Bill, it's great to be with you, and I, I want to say something to your audience so that they know. You, every time you have a show, your producers turn that show into a podcast. In other words, they make available a full recording of that show. And you do not select only the best parts where you sound smartest. You put the whole show on, unlike what Tucker Carlson <laughs> is doing. And I think people need to know how committed you are to that. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And in fact, Kevin, it, it's fascinating to me, as long as you brought it up, that um, we we have more listeners to the podcast than actually on the radio, which is fascinating to me. Last year, we had well over a million downloads of the podcast. So it's, it's, it's th- thank you for uh, mentioning that. Uh, and so since Kevin promoted us, you can get that podcast wherever you download your podcast from, Political Rewind. All right, let's get right to the rest of the panel. Tanya Washington is back with us today, professor of law at Georgia State University. How are you, Tanya? I am wonderful. It's great to be here and to have a smart conversation with smart folks. It's a pleasure to have you here. Alan Abramowitz is back with us as well. He's now Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Emory University. Alan, um, now that the midterm election is over and you have had emeritus status for a while now, you did teach during uh, the midterms. Are your, do you have plans to continue teaching a class, or are you going to start taking it easy? I'm going to both continue teaching and take it easy. So uh, I'm going well. to be teaching a uh, freshman seminar next spring on the presidential nomination process, where we'll be looking at, uh, you know, of course, uh, what's happening in the 2024 nomination campaigns. And I apologize for my dogs barking in the background there. <laughs> oh, that's, we, we barely hear them. Don't worry about it at all. Rick Nett's back with us as well. Rick Nett has been in uh, political life for most of his career, uh, working for three Democratic Southern governors. The um, final one, Zell Miller, when he was uh, Zell Miller's press secretary. And now Rick is the vice president of Matrix communications. And among other things, those of you who listen to the show know that there's nobody who keeps track of political ad spending and the commercials that come along during a campaign season. Uh, Rick, you get a little break from all that for a while, at least. Well, yes and no. Mississippi is cranking up this year. So we're doing the exact same thing in Mississippi right now. So it never stops. Okay. Okay. You're right. It never does. Let, let's, uh, Kevin Riley, start with talk about the budget, the fiscal 2024 budget, which uh, the whole House is set to um, vote on today. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, let's talk about where the money is going. Um, as uh, James Salzer and the AJC pointed out, this budget is heavily focused on police, law enforcement, public safety, and has a good amount of money to expand public health services, which is something the legislature started last year. And it includes um, uh, the biggest increase ever for K through 12 schools and a lot more. But let's start with the law enforcement end of it, um, Kevin. The budget includes uh, includes raises of $4,000 for law enforcement officers, um, and, and we know that one of the reasons for that is that it's hard to recruit new officers in most uh, law enforcement organizations these days. But it also includes $1.5 million 
for a state patrol outpost in Buckhead, which is clearly a reaction to the continued efforts by some of those separatists who want to carve out an independent Buckhead city, particularly because they're worried about crime. Kevin? Right. I think that's a way to keep it from coming up uh, yet again in the legislature, uh, you know, next year. But um, I wonder, I mean, those of us who drive down 400, I don't know if we're going to be excited about a state patrol post right there uh, when we're in a big rush to get downtown or to Midtown. Rick, Rick Dent, I'm curious about something that you'll be familiar with. Back in the day uh, when you were working for uh, Zell Miller, one of the things that we all waited for was what was the revenue estimate that the governor's office was going to set in terms of allocations, you know, money coming in so that there'd be a sense of how much you could spend. It, unless I'm missing something, that's gone completely out the window. And, and, and they no longer worry about, are we going to have a 3% increase in revenues, 2%? It's interesting that we don't talk about the budget in those terms anymore. Uh, you're right. It it is completely different. You know, back in the day, you were absolutely. I know with Zell Miller, he was terrified of having to come back and make cuts, and so you really used to struggle to try to get that perfect number. Where, because they're all elected officials, they want to spend. I don't care what party's in charge; they want to spend as much money as they possibly can. But at the same time, they don't ever want to have to come back and go, well, you know what? We kind of over budgeted and we got to start making some massive cuts. But, you know, th- this day with um, <laughs> the, the the lack of, let's say, attention from uh, regular voters these days in terms of holding politicians accountable. Um, and we just kind of go from crisis to crisis these days. You're right. It, it just it doesn't matter anymore. Let's just spend as much as we can. Alan, <laughs> let me just throw out some other numbers from the budget and then you and then Tanya, I'd love for you to just pick up on anything you uh, want to. The House has added two point seven million in terms of law enforcement for a new GBI cold case office, two point five million for sexual assault nurse examiners. million for more forensic crime staffers to help clear evidence backlog. So there's a a commitment, again, law enforcement money. Uh, In addition, the budget includes some $10 million to increase wages at state psychiatric hospitals and $2.25 million more for suicide hotline management. So just in those two alone, you're talking about mental health and law enforcement Mm -hmm. again, yes? Yes, and and uh, I think on the mental health side, what we're seeing here is a reflection of, you know, the uh, passage of the the, the big you know, mental health uh, bill that occurred in the last session, and now uh, uh, continuation of that, and and uh, an effort to provide the necessary funding, um, actually to implement that, that those policies, and and so that that's something that had very broad bipartisan. Support, you know, on the question of uh, what about the revenue side? Um, I, I think that part of this is a reflection of the fact that we have been going through over the past a couple of years, or three or four years at least, a period of uh, where we're seeing the state revenues have really been uh, increased dramatically, and we have this big surplus, and and so it's it's kind of a time when uh, both the governor and the legislators feel comfortable. Uh, about increasing spending pretty pretty freely and not worrying too much uh, about you know any potential downside to that. Of course, at some point that's going to come to an end, um, and there are some concerns right now that if we do see a, have a recession uh, at some point in the next year or two, that we could see a, a decrease in in that uh, in that money stream, and that you know could put us back in a position where there will need to be uh, cuts and and something that would be you know, I think much much more divisive. And Tanya, what, what, uh, yeah, go ahead. What I would have liked to see, um, given the surplus that Alan just referenced, was more of an investment in affordable housing, both in our urban centers and our, in our rural parts of the state, an investment in the child welfare system in the wake of um, the six-week abortion ban, which means we're going to have 
more children entering into our foster care um, system and an investment in the state's rural and, and urban education system. Beyond just the raises for the teachers, we've got children who are behind by virtue of the pandemic. And so if we are going to experience a recession, those areas are already underfunded. They will be even more underfunded if budgets have to be cut further. We, I should point out that um... There were any number of years when revenues were lean that the state was not able to fully fund uh, education uh, based on what is everybody agrees and totally outmoded uh, 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 blueprint, which is the Quality Basic Education Act. This budget, like last year's, does fully fund schools, and it does, Tanya, add thirteen billion a, a total now of thirteen billion dollars on K through twelve schools. Uh, which is a record. The question is, where is that money going? How is it going to be spent? Because QBE did not do a very good job of distributing that money in ways that it was as helpful to particularly underperforming schools as the initial intent of QBE was. Absolutely. I think that funding scheme is accurately described as outdated, and it doesn't achieve as much equity as it does kind of parity. Um, and I think we need more equity. The schools that need the most, um, that are dealing with children experiencing the most challenges and the most um, regression in the pandemic, need more resources to bring them back up to par. That's an investment in our future workforce. Uh, Kevin, before we leave the budget, um, because it's going to play into the next subject we talk about, um, as we said from the start, Law enforcement is getting a big investment of state funding in this uh, fiscal 2024 budget, and it's in keeping with Governor Kemp's plans to uh, really get tough on crime uh, in, and to uh, uh, advance programs that will, uh, uh, in fact, uh, be an effort to crack down on crime across metro Atlanta, certainly North Georgia, but all of the state for that matter, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans, uh, we have a Republican governor, we obviously have a Republican-dominated legislature, and they have laid claim to this law and order uh, point of view, and, uh, you know, it sets them up to talk about it uh, next time they have to run, and no one, you know, it's really kind of hard to find anyone who's purely against uh, giving uh, state employees raises or law enforcement folks raises. I mean, I know we're going to get into some of the controversy about this uh, police training center, but I think that uh, the governor is not going to let go of being uh, a leader who stands up for uh, law and order. He He is not backing off that. And we can argue about what the best approaches are and whether they're his thinking is long-term enough, but in, in fact, he's he's standing there and he's going to keep standing there. Um, all right, Rick, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to expand upon what I think Kevin was really getting at. Um, I always like to bring politics into every discussion. Uh, this budget is about politics. This is good politics. It's good for, number one, the Republican Party, that Kemp forged this, and it's good for Kemp. It's about his legacy, and it's about his political future. But he also understands he needs to keep a majority in the future in a state that is slowly moving to become purple, and one day is going to be blue. So this is about holding on to power as long as you possibly can, and this is an agenda that is popular across the board. And one big distinction I want to make, and we talked about this when he first unveiled it, it's important what's in this agenda. What is really important is what's not in this agenda. Other states run by very conser conservative governors are talking about trans athletes. They're talking about CRT. There is an attack on colleges and universities now on tenure. That's not happening in Georgia. Yes, there is some legislation, but by and large, Kemp is leading or attempting to lead and mold a moderate Republican Party to keep control in the state of Georgia. That's what that budget's uh, about. Tanya? I, I just I want to um, add to something that Rick said about the politics of the budget. 
as it pertains to tenure in Georgia, what is brilliant about the, the governor's approach um, is that tenure is being challenged, but not in a public space. So those of us in the academy, um, you know, Georgia has been censured by the American Association of University Professors because of Board of Regents policies. But the only people who are really aware of that are the people who are going to be affected by it. Um, and so it's being done, but it's being done behind the scenes, which makes it much more threatening to faculty members um, without incurring the wrath of the public for going after public educators in higher ed in the same way that some other governors are doing. And I also wonder if he's setting himself up for a VP position. I mean, I've heard talk of a of a uh, DeSantis Kemp ticket. They're outside of Trump, but they can capture the imagination and the, the, the priorities of a Republican party that's not affiliated with with trump and so this is it's all part of the strategy alan i do want to take a little bit of an issue with uh rick's last uh, points um there is a big oh, transgender oh. bill that is awaiting passage and will likely pass which would prevent uh, uh medical personnel doctors from uh, uh transgender treatments for young people um, without regard to what the families may believe is best for them. And we did last year have a divisive concepts bill that uh, passed mm -hmm. is in place, which does, in fact, relate to CRT and how we teach history. So I would, I would just take a little exception uh, to what Rick is saying. On the other side of it, I would say that he's correct that uh, there are things in this budget that really do make him popular. We have the potential to make him popular across party lines, including... We now are going to have, uh, based on the supplemental budget, a $1 billion property tax uh, uh, um, measure. Um, the reality of that is it sounds like a lot of money, but the most that any one family is going to get is $500 uh, in tax breaks on property tax. That, that's meaningful to, to some people for sure. And we're going to see a $1 billion uh, uh, income tax uh, rebate as well. So those are obviously what Rick's talking about when he says this is a popular budget for the people of Georgia in some ways. Some ways. I think that's right. Um, certainly, the, you know, Kemp is not uh, waging the sort of very high profile, you know, culture war campaign uh, that Rick DeSantis is in Florida. Um, uh, Kemp is different in, in, in that regard. But But let's not call him a moderate. Um, uh, Brian Kemp is very much conservative and co very conservative in many ways, Republican. Um, and you know, think about some of the things that are also not in this budget or not being proposed by the governor. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in, including Medicaid expansion. That's including um, trying to do something about, you know, the, the fact that that tens of thousands of Georgians are going to lose their health insurance coverage with the with the end of the the sort of a pandemic, uh, uh, official end of the pandemic, you know, even though it's still with us. Um, so, uh, yes, Kemp is a, uh, a different kind of conservative um, and has distanced himself you know, from Donald Trump to, to you know, in, in, almost because he had to, um, given the, the election interference efforts that, that Trump was making here in Georgia. Um, but he's still very much uh, a, a, a very strongly conservative uh, Republican. You know, Bill, I love to disagree with Rick whenever I can, too. But I, I mean, <laughs> think about this for a second. Um, it, it, what is Kemp is setting himself up? And we don't know for what yet. And we don't you know, but uh, hardworking Georgians, I cut their taxes. I paid their police more. I played their paid their teachers more. I gave them a property tax rebate. I mean, he he's going toward these classic Republican positions that unlike the culture war stuff, which he did mostly get away, get, get out of the way last in the last session. Uh, there are some things out there this time. I mean, he's taking these classic unassailable Republican positions. And, and you know, I'm hardworking Georgians. How many times have we heard that? I think we're going to hear it a lot more. Well, and you know, by okay, the way, Rick, those, used to be Demo those used to be Democratic positions, mm -hmm. just by the way. <laughs> I think they still are. Rick, Rick, <laughs> yeah, Rick, 
Rick, before we leave this, one, one last point. Um, the, the get tough on crime, the law and order uh, agenda of Republicans this time around. I've said it on the show before. I'm not sure you and I have ever had a chance to talk about it. But this harkens back to the days of your governor, uh, Zell Miller, who uh, I think it was in his first state of the state speech. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, said, uh, we're going to get tough on criminals in this state. Two strikes and you are out. And um, he was uh, very firm about that. And uh, we seem to be going back to that today. Uh, you're actually speaking to someone who helped create that policy. Uh, we <laughs> actually did it in his um, final year of the, the first term so that we could run on it. Oh. And it was a constitutional amendment as well. So it was on the ballot with us at the same time. So that was so Governor Miller and Rick thought about speeding up baseball before baseball did with this two strikes and uh, and you're out. Exactly what he said. All right, all right. Uh, You know what? Why don't we do this? Why don't we get? We're going to move on from the budget. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back uh, with more. I really do want to hear what the panel has to say about this latest incidence of violence at the uh, site of the planned Atlanta Police Training Center. So much controversy surrounding what's happening there. We'll do that and a lot more. But first, these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Rick Dent, Tanya Washington, Alan Abramowitz, and Kevin Riley join me for today's Political Rewind. Uh, Kevin? Uh, Over the weekend, we had another uh, violent incident at the site of the planned Atlanta Police Training Center. There was a there's a week long uh, gathering of protesters who oppose the training center. It's always important to point out there are different reasons that people are protesting. There are some people who are protesting because of environmental reasons, thinking that the forest uh, where this will be located shouldn't be tampered with. There are those who are anti-police, but uh, seem to be willing to be peaceful in their protests of of what they see as police um, uh, misconduct, especially in dealing with black communities. And then there are are anarchists who have come in here from uh, around the country, and in fact, in a couple of cases, from foreign countries. But so we had another incident on Sunday— 23 people were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism after throwing rocks and bottles, fireworks and the like at police. So once again, we're embroiled in controversy about the site, but also about how the protesters are being dealt with. Kevin? Yeah, Bill, it's become a a, a big and confusing uh, and imp- almost impossible to sort out story. You know, sometimes people will like to use the phrase, well, there are two sides to a story. To me, there's there seem to be four or five sides to the story because there are people who legitimately support the training center. There are people who legitimately are against it. Uh, some of those people who are against it are, have different reasons and they've sort of come together over those reasons. And then we have this violent element. I mean, in the end, uh, it looked like a very planned, uh, violent attempt to disrupt a construction that resulted in a vehicle being burned and, and potentially dangerous violence. <laughs> and as has been pointed out, much of those arrested in the violent part, uh, many, virtually all of the people arrested in the violence are not local people who seem to have a stake in what's going on. So it's to me, it's it's become very confusing to sort this whole thing out. And it seems like at some point, some leadership has to emerge to say, let's have this conversation. Let's figure out what's best for this community. Let's understand each other. You know, Tanya, there's an extent to which selective listening or reading plays a role in all of this. And by that, I mean, 
Um, I've gotten a lot of email, I'll bet Kevin Riley and his team at the AJC have too, from people who think they're hearing us say one thing about what's happening with protesters when, in fact, we're saying other things. And here's an example of that. After we talked about this on the show on Monday, um, a number of people sent me notes saying, nobody, all the protests, there are not all violent protesters. There are people who have legitimate peaceful reasons for protesting. Why are you uh, towering them all with the same brush? Well, we never have. We have said repeatedly, as has the AJC and other news organizations, um, there are a variety of kinds of people involved in the protest. But like everything else in society today, this seems to be a case of people hearing what they want to and taking a hard line on a partisan side of an issue, not Republican-Democrat partisan, of course, uh, nevertheless, it's a partisan divide. And though I'm, I'm so glad you started this segment highlighting kind of the justifications, and, and Kevin echoed that, the justifications for which people are out there. They're intersecting, they're overlapping. In some regards, they're distinct. You have people who are concerned about spending taxpayers' dollars on a training center for urban warfare because they find that threatening. Uh, you know, they live in urban centers and they're like, why are we investing this money um, on police that are hired to protect and serve, to train them? Because when you invest in a bunch of hammers, everything starts looking like a nail. Then there are environmentalists, there are people um, from indigenous communities that are concerned about the, the history of this land. Um, and I think we have to be really careful about the outside agitator characterization, because I'm thinking Freedom Summer of 1964, 700 mostly white young people who are now heralded as heroes came to the South um, in defense of voter equity and inclusion and participation and against discrimination. And John Lewis was among them. And these were organized by national organizations. And they came and did what the local community was not empowered to do, which was to shine a light and they use their privilege as young white people to help advance uh, a movement. And so I think we, you know, we, we've got to be mindful of the broader context in which this uh, this fight over Cop City or the training facility is, is being waged. Yeah, Alan and then Rick, I think Tanya makes a really interesting point. Because some of the criticism of the protesters has been, they are primarily white. There are very few black people protesting at the uh, site of the uh, training center. Um, and the criticism among some has been, well, if mostly what they're upset about is uh, abuse of uh, 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 police uh, uh, in dealing with black uh, people, uh, why aren't there more black people out there? At, but that criticism, Tanya really points out, um, misunderstands the value of having white people who maybe have more privilege being part of something like this. I think that's a good point. Um, but I would say there's a big difference between what's going on here in these protests and what happened during the Freedom Summer. Um, because here what you have is a relatively small group of people who are from outside the state. Um, coming here with the intent, pretty clearly with the intent of carrying out violence. Um, it's, you know, if you, if you look at the descriptions of, of what took place, um, you know, during and after that, that concert, it's clear there was a relatively small group of people who had every intent of engaging in violence. Um, they put on their gear and they went out uh, in a coordinated way and they engaged in a violent attack. And unfortunately, that is tending to you know, garner the lion's share of the attention. Uh, and it's actually distracting attention, I think, from some of the legitimate issues uh, that are involved here. You know, there are several very legitimate issues about the way this came about, about the way the local community, you know, in, in that area was not involved or consulted um, about some of the potential damage to the environment, including water watershed. I think that, I understand that that's a big concern. And very legitimate concern and about whether this is the right even if you need a police training center which i think many people agree that there is a need for something for police and, and firefighters to train it doesn't have to be right there 
Um, and, and there are other places that could have been located. Um, so unfortunately, I think, you know, the violence is what is getting the, the lion's share of the attention and, and the people who are carrying that out are doing it, in my view, a disservice to the community um, and to those who are uh, have have legitimate concerns about about this police training center. Rick. Boy, I, I don't even know where to start. You know, the protesters have given the police an, uh, an easy out. Again, I get personally offended when I see the narrative of outside agitators because mm -hmm. I know exactly what that means. And it's designed back then and it's designed now to undercut the idea that there's any opposition in Atlanta, when in fact there is substantial opposition in Atlanta. So it's not just these white kids from Wisconsin throwing bottles and firecrackers at the police, number one. Number two, from the police side, and my company has been very lucky for by complete accident, we've discovered what was going on out there at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And we've been watching it extremely close. And, and what folks need to understand, this is a very sophisticated effort. They have funding, they have strategy, they know how to build coalitions. They are using techniques and tactics that only professionals use and why the city sat there and did nothing while they were out there for months and months and nobody noticed, nobody cared. I can tell you, I mentioned it to several friends of mine who are journalists. So you, you need to take a look out there. I couldn't get anyone to bite early, early on. Mm -hmm. And now the city has something that they may not be able to handle in the long run. One other question I just want to throw out, and again, this is from my own personal experience working in government and working around politicians. The question is this, why this location? When politicians and elected officials dig in their heels on something that makes absolutely no sense to the rest of us, the answer is usually bad. <clears throat> I don't know what the answer is, but the answer is usually bad. And I, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is either, Rick, but I would suspect that it has something to do with um, the demographic of the folks who live in that neighborhood, who don't have the political power to mount the kind of resistance. Imagine, just imagine, if this training facility was planned for Buckhead. I know. Right. It, it just wouldn't happen because you have well-resourced people who can say not in my backyard um, the the location in terms of class and race, uh, the racial and class demographics of the people who surround the facility, the place where the facility is planned are not folks like the folks who reside in Buckhead. And I wanted to say that um, I completely agree with Rick. This has been going on a long time, but the first time it seemed to register on the radar of the media and the public officials who are involved is when the young man, Manuel Tehran, who's referred to as Tort, was killed. Right. And so then it comes on the red, you know, comes on the radar screen. Had it registered as significant before there was violence and someone died? then I think um, those who are involved in the deal would have had a better chance at putting their arms around it. I'm talking to friends in DC who are getting solicitations for fundraising um, national from national organizations. Rick is right. This is now beyond Atlanta, beyond Georgia, and of national scope. Kevin, uh, it's very interesting that the uh, King Center is going to host a uh, town hall on the training center tonight. So suddenly we are not just talking about a protest of, of white people. Um, and the New Georgia Project, founded by Stacey Abrams, has decided to get involved in this effort as well. But again, this is so complicated. Um, it, it, the, you, if police are, if, if there are protesters who decide to become violent. And again, it's only a handful. But on Sunday, a handful of them were throwing rocks and bottles, fireworks at 
police and they were burning construction equipment. Um, you can't blame the police for wanting to make arrests. Now, you could argue that domestic terrorism charges, which was the uh, decision of, of Governor Kemp, again, get tough on crime Kemp, uh, to use a, a very severe kind of uh, charge against these protesters, and, and now 23 more as a result of Sunday, that may be overreaction. But um, what do you do when there are people uh, who are deciding that violence is a way to show their uh, opposition to the site, and more important, to law enforcement in general? Right. And and I understand that this has gotten a lot of attention lately, but just as someone whose whose organization has covered this from the moment it was first raised and we've been following it, there's a couple of things I would want to mention. I mean, don't forget that some of what has gone on includes this group taking responsibility for vandalism at the construction company's headquarters, which aren't even in Atlanta, at and also firebombing an at-promise center, which is a, a Atlanta police initiative for youth um, over in the uh, area near the new stadium. So it is a very complicated issue, as you point out, Bill, and everyone seems to be talking past each other in one way or another. And that's why I kind of said what I said at the beginning is I think at some point, we're going to need a leader in the community to step up and say, look, we have got to figure this out. Because to me, it seems odd to have the mayor behind it. And apparently the King Center hosting a rally, you know, the police uh, uh, um, foundation for it. And then now Stacey Abrams uh, organization against it. I mean, it just doesn't make sense that this the, the community could be so divided on something that is of importance to everyone. Rick, let me take the other side of it. Um, there was a tweet uh, that Chase McGee found, a, a, a thread of tweets from yesterday, um, in that shows video of mm, a dozen or so uh, protesters walking in a pretty much of a single file line down Peachtree Street, handing out flyers opposing the training center. Um, and they were stopped by, again, video shows, a small group of Atlanta uniformed police officers. And here's what one of those officers told the people in that group. Let's listen. I hereby declare that being on this sidewalk, you are obstructing or impeding the normal and reasonable movement of pedestrian traffic in violation of Atlanta city ordinance. Okay. In the name of the people of the state of Georgia, I hereby command that all present in the sidewalk, all present here in the sidewalk, immediately exit the street or the roadway or sidewalk. If you do not do so, you may be detained or arrested. Now, Rick, if that was a peaceful little march, uh, and this is the way police reacted, certainly this is not going to calm things down. No, it's not. And and again, you're talking to someone who had to deal with freak neck. And I know some of the policies that were enacted to break that. And um, this is what happens. The difference between breaking freak neck in the 90s and today is video cameras and tape recorders are everywhere. And um, these folks are very sophisticated with social media. And they know how to use what just happened. And that's a good thing for them. At the same time, look, uh, objectively, I understand the position that the police are in. You have to understand that at one point, the protest side published a website that identified every police officer working in that precinct with their faces, with their social media with their family members, and with their addresses. So by and large, the other side at one point put targets on the back of every officer in that precinct. I get it. You know, I, I, I get it. Alan, this is why this is so complicated, because in his last two uh, comments on this subject, Rick has being able to go to both sides and show why both sides have a right to some of their grievances. Alan? 
And it's that's understandable. Um, and I, but I think it's important to uh, understand this this particular issue of the the uh, uh, building, this construction of this of this police training center and the protests against it has to be located in the in the larger context. I think of, of this the issue of, of crime and violent crime, um, which is a major concern of the public. Um, in Atlanta and, and across the country, and, and and looking at the results of some recent elections, particularly the Chicago mayoral race, where we saw the uh, incumbent mayor uh, defeated uh, and failed to even make it into a runoff, receiving only 17% of a vote, and and a candidate who was a, a, a finished first who was uh, espousing a, a pretty tough law and order line. This is the context in, in which this is happening here. And I think that's why you're going to see that, generally speaking, um, Democratic, elect, even Democratic elected officials are going to be very reluctant um, to be seen as overly sympathetic um, to the protests. Um, they don't want to be seen as, in any way, uh, undermining support for the police uh, and for, for, for law enforcement and, and uh, you know, uh, for, for um, being perceived as being soft on, on crime. Tanya, I got to get to a break, but one final brief comment from you before we do. I would just add to the co broader context that Alan alluded to, that there are also people who are concerned about the need for meaningful police reform, not just abolition of the police, but meaningful police reform because their public safety, their children, their brothers and sisters are being killed and brutalized by police who are paid to serve them. And so that also is part of why we're getting folks willing to travel here to lend their support in opposition to a training facility for urban warfare, which arguably will produce more of the kind of violence against community members that they're opposed to. Okay, I get that, but I would counter that and say the other side of that is those who say, wait a minute, this isn't about the militarization of police. In fact, much of what they might do at this training, we don't know some of the training tools that are going to be employed and what they're going to do. It may be about how to de-escalate situations as, as much as it is about further. Uh, so again, this is so complicated. And I think an element that's been largely missing from this conversation, and we won't get to it today because I got to get to a break, is the power over the decades that, has, that the Atlanta Police Foundation has accrued the money that they have and the power they have with the uh, elected officials to get what they want, because they're the driving force behind this. And I think they deserve further scrutiny as this project moves forward. And we'll talk about that at some point on Political Rewind. We're out of time for this segment of the show. We'll be back with more in a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Let me just make two quick notes, and there are things that we can follow up on in uh, shows coming up. Uh, there's two environment, interesting environmental stories in the news today. Um, one is that the CEO of Norfolk Southern, which is based here in Atlanta, is appearing before Congress today after that horrible wreck in East Palestine, Ohio, he is going to be asked to defend the safety practices of that company. And, and so we'll follow up on that as the show moves forward in days ahead. And the other one is that there is an ongoing bill still alive in the Georgia legislature to protect the Okefenokee Swamp by um, encouraging uh, the United Nations to make it a World Heritage Site to prevent further mining near the site. We know that there's an Alabama company that's about to start mining titanium not far from the site. So uh, we'll watch how that comes forward 
moves forward as well. But Kevin, we did a show just about a week ago on how on the media and the media in the headline. And things have only gotten more dramatic since we did that show. We have learned this week because of information released in the Dominion uh, voting machine lawsuit against Fox News, just how completely cynical the uh, personalities of Fox News have been, were about these claims of a fraudulent election. Uh, and it's kind of staggering to see uh, a Sean Hannity, a Laura Ingram, a Tucker Carlson among talking among themselves about the fact that the people who are promoting these theories are basically fools and yet going on the air and, and promoting those theories. Yeah, it's really from a, a media professional standpoint, it's appalling. It really is. And it reveals some things about Co or Fox rather that have long been um you know, criticisms, but that they're really just leading an audience along with an agenda and not really a news organization. And people have now been coming out and saying that, that this makes clear that Fox is not truly a news organization. And it certainly undermines that long, uh, long history of their, we report, you decide. Apparently not. Uh, Rick, what's uh, really uh, uh, added to all of this, of course, is that uh, we started seeing from Tucker Carlson, who got from the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, exclusive rights to 40,000 hours of basically surveillance video in the Capitol of the insurrection as it unfolded. And he began the other night with selective edits to try to make the point that this was a peaceful March, uh, especially showing the so-called uh, QAnon shaman being escorted through the Capitol peacefully by Capitol mm -hmm. Police. You know, first I was going to say to Kevin's point, this is like figuring out that the WWE is is not real wrestling. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's absolutely clear what Fox is. Um, look. To, uh, the fact that anybody is still paying attention to Tucker Carlson and believing anything that he says is amazing to me, because we now know on the record, he lies, he knows he lies, he wants to lie because he wants eyeballs on him. But he can cut it, that film, any way he wants. In the end, people died and law enforcement got attacked in the story. Well, Alan, let's bring this back to Georgia. Because after Tucker Carlson showed these videos, uh, it, which he said showed that this was a peaceful kind of stroll through the U.S. Capitol by people with no intentions of doing harm, two members of our congressional delegation, Mike Collins and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's been saying it over and over, called for the release of the so-called political prisoners who were arrested and are being held awaiting trial, and in some cases have been convicted and are in prison. Uh, because they were wrong, wrongfully arrested. Right. And I think that this once again re reveals the, the deep divisions that exist within the Republican Party today and uh, the continuing uh, impact of Donald Trump on the Republican Party here in Georgia and across the country. Um, so what we've seen in response to these totally misleading, uh, totally misleading uh, use of these tapes um, by Tucker Carlson, which was totally predictable. And when Kevin McCarthy gave him those tapes, that we knew exactly what he was going to do, um, is that we've seen a very divided response coming from Republican elected officials, where uh, some Republican elected officials have just called Carson out for lying um, and referred to it as BS, uh, mainly several Republican senators, including Mitch McConnell. Uh, on the other hand, we've seen other Republican uh, elected officials, including the two you mentioned, uh, and a number of others, mainly in, in the House of Representatives, um, who have uh, gone along with Carlson and claimed that, you know, oh, look, he's, he's, he's exposed the, the lie about what happened on January 6th, that it was, it was a peaceful protest. Um, and so this is an ongoing division that exists within the Republican Party, um, and it's going to continue. And I, and I think as, as long as Trump is around and his, uh, his allies are around, um, it's going to play out in the 2024 Republican primaries. 
uh, around the country, including here in Georgia. Tanya, before we run out of time, I just want to ask you about a. I thought of something this morning that, that occurred to me uh, as I was watching news about Tucker Carlson. You know, we've seen lots of stories about how the Russian people continue to support the war against Ukraine because the information they get suggests that Ukraine is an aggressive, an aggressor state run by Nazis, corrupt. Uh, so they're living in a universe, those Russians, with misinformation. Not a whole lot dissimilar from the Fox viewers and what they're being told by Tucker Carlson. They're living in a misinformation bubble right now, too. Yes, and misinformation has political consequences. Um, I, from a legal perspective, the relevance of the comments of Carson and Ingram and others goes to uh, Dominion's defamation action in that it answers the question whether at the time they were reporting fraudulent election results as truth and fact. These presenters, I don't know if we can still call them journalists or or, you know, uh, reporters knew that they were telling a lie, right? Because that speaks to specifically to that defamation action. But I think it also speaks to the credibility of the news organization um, as a whole. Tanya Washington gets the last word in today's Political Rewind. Tanya, so happy you were here. You too, Rick Dent, Alan Abramowitz, and Kevin Riley. Thanks for an awfully good conversation. Hey, tomorrow, by the way, we are going to devote an hour, Jim Galloway and I, to a conversation with Chuck Cook, the undisputed dean of political science professors in Georgia. He has 50 years of uh covering uh, uh, politics here as his in his uh, academic work. So we'll talk to Chuck tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody.